Hi, I'm Mark Cade. This is Why We Listen. In this podcast, I meet with my guests to listen to and discuss music. I ask them to choose three pieces of music in advance using whatever criteria they'd like, and we listen to those songs and we talk. And in this episode, I meet with Sylvie Simmons. Sylvie is a writer and musician, author of I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, Serge Gainsbourg, A Fistful of Gitan, and countless articles on music since the 70s. I'm keeping this intro short because I'm also in the midst of um, very shortly posting the latest episode of Scary Thoughts, my other podcast that's about horror that I do with Chad Lott. And the upcoming episode of that podcast of Scary Thoughts is with our friend, the author Meg Ellison. Uh, so let's just get right to it. Here's Sylvie Simmons. So what are you working on now? What are you taking a break from to come and speak with me right now? I was just putting my fingers off the keyboard where I was trying to finish the final chapter of a book I'm writing with Debbie Harry. And how does with work, at least <laughs> in this context? <laughs> I think you should have us both in the room together and we'll have an arm wrestling match. No, no, match no, I want your, I want your version. <laughs> I think you should rather have the wrestling match. I mean, for heaven's sake, we don't offer that very much to radio. <laughs> So How what, does it work? Yeah. Well, I think it works differently for different people. Um, this is the first time I've done a collaboration. The very idea of it struck me as a horror. You know, writers tend to be fairly solitary types, except when they're going out at shows and getting drunk and having a good time. But generally, they don't jam. You know, musicians jam. We all sit around. We can take the back. We can take the forward. But with writing, it tends to be very much a solo act. But I thought I would take this on because I'd previously spent years writing a, a biography. In fact, the biography, ha, the official biography, supported biography is a better term, of Leonard Cohen. And so after that, where do you go? I mean, you've been at the top of the mountain. And, and so I was asked to work with Debbie and I thought, well, this is something different. You know, I've never done a collaboration and I tended to write about men, <laughs> letting the side down a little bit there. So I thought, let's go for it. Let's see how that goes. And so uh, that's what we've been doing for the last, I guess, like two and a half years. Have you written about her previously or interviewed her at any point in the past? Or is working with her sort of just like this new experience of this, of this artist? Well, I'd only ever interviewed her once. The thing is that most music journalists are men. I was one of the rare ones without a penis in this game. Especially when you started, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, back in the midst of time in the late 70s. <laughs> and so basically all the men journalists, being in the majority, wanted to interview Debbie, which usually meant just sort of staring, <laughs> you know, in that kind of way that they have well, at her. But anybody, I mean, to be fair, speak. Yes, gen true. gender nonspecific. You're absolutely She's right. She's something. <laughs> she does set a certain standard and I love her dearly. But, you know, back then I would have had to, you know, get into huge battles with all the men that were in yes. line to interview her. And I think she kind of appreciated that. Yeah. So how do you find it has changed for you? And and this is sort of a, a gendered and non-gendered question that um, as time has gone on, it has ostensibly become easier for uh, non-male journalists to, to progress. But also you've got this legacy. So how do you feel like things have become easier both between women having more opportunities in, in music journalism and that you sort of have this this personal biography of these books and articles that precede you? Well, there's plenty more women writing. I mean, one of the great things about the digital revolution was that it opened everything up. Everybody could be a writer. Of course, that makes it difficult because there's no filter. You haven't got sort of a reputation as you used to do in the music press. When I started, um, this was in England, hence the accent, back in 1977 when I was a kid, and there were four rock weeklies out at that time, Sounds, Record Mirror, Melody Maker, and NME. And people who love music like I did, we kind of lived and breathed for these magazines. They told us what was going on because on the TV there was very, very little. There were maybe one show every week, Top of the Pops. And there wasn't much on the radio. There were pirate radio stations that were boats that were off of the, uh, in the English Channel, off of the actual mainland, otherwise they'd have been arrested. But really, we didn't have that kind of 
you know, the insights from very opinionated journalism. And this was also a very different time of journalism because it was, uh, I guess, in the, the late 60s, but especially in the 70s, rock music journalism, it was the kind of gonzo journalism that had been introduced by um, Hunter S. Thompson and the recently deceased Tom Wolfe, where these people kind of were as much as part of the story as a story. I loved that. I was like a teenager with a lovely big ego who tried to be a rock star but failed by having stage fright. So I really wanted to be a little rock star journalist. And so it was a wonderful time, a golden age for writers. These days, I think most of it that you get in magazines is a lot more critically detached. You know, we're not so much part of the story. But the other bad side of the digitalization is it completely ruined the publishing business. I just read today that Interview Magazine has closed down. Mm. NME itself, which kept going forever in England, had to stop publishing as, as a newspaper, as a, you know, as a magazine rather, because it had changed from newspaper to something slightly more glossy. And so that gone downhill. And really it's, it's meant a lot, a lot of people want their content, as it's now called, instead of writing for free. So yes, you can be a rock journalist, but baby doll, you ain't going to make any money and there won't be any more free flights, free drinks, free parties and free craziness that I had the, you know, the absolute fortune to come up in. Do you feel like that's affecting your work very much? Or do you, do you sort of like have these pieces, people know where to find you, you've kind of got your track are you participating in much digital journalism at this point? Um, no, not really. And in fact, Mojo, which is the main magazine I write for in the UK, is completely non-digital. They've got a kind of little website, but they don't put the content on. Otherwise, people would just want it for free. They get into a lot of trouble for that, but that's really the only way that they can pay us the pittances that we get. But we can still live on. It really did change an awful lot as far as income. And so in the end, there are some other areas... You can make a little bit of cash, which is like writing album liner notes because a lot of the old great albums, you know, kind of coming out now in box sets and stuff or or just reissues with bonus tracks. And so there's this little sideline for us. And I've been writing books lately. so And also I've got a second career that pays no money, which is being a singer-songwriter slash ukulele player. <laughs> you... The big time boy. Oh, God. <laughs> so... How long have you been playing ukulele then? Like how did, and, and he what, looks at what me in you? shock, folks. You should see the face here. It's like <gasps> I knew you played ukulele. What I are you know. talking about? I know you've been on tour. <laughs> like, but how? At what? At what point did you cross that threshold? Well, it's all down to Leonard Cohen, really. It was uh, after I finished writing this big tome on Leonard Cohen. If any of you have actually seen it, you see how heavy it is. Yeah, you have to buy two copies it's a serious to even read. yourself out, or you ruin your spine. <laughs> Yes, it's a big serious Tear it in half and put half in your back pocket. (laughs) You got it. Throw the pages as you go, so at least you can carry something home. (laughs) So when that was finished, I was just expecting to be able to break out of, you know, the four walls where you spend a lot of time as a writer. It's not as glamorous as some people think sometimes. And uh, the publisher was having none of it. You know, they didn't want to sort of set me up all the radio, TV, stage shows, all of the things I thought after, you know, doing such a long an intense piece of work might be my my lot. And so I had musician friends who said, well, why don't you just go out and sing some of his songs, you know, and take the book and we'll play with you. And it was that last bit, we'll play with you, that <laughs> did it. And so I took my ukulele on the road. And, and uh, the answer to how long, I got my first uke in 2006. I'd left all my uh, instruments in storage in England when I moved out here. And I'd only been out there a couple of years that time. I wasn't sure if I was going to stay. So uh, somebody came over. It was actually a boyfriend who had a uke he was learning to play. And I stole the uke. He took it back and gave me my own one. And uh, I just became obsessed with it. And suddenly, you know, it's like, I don't know, Jimi Hendrix finds his instrument. It's a stonking great electric guitar. And the gods decided that my instrument should be this tiny little stupid ukulele. But, But it worked for me. That's great. Uh, well, a stolen one is a pretty great way to start any instrument. <laughs> or any career, really. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so you brought a bunch of music. What what shall we listen to first? Well, you know, it was the most difficult thing in the world to ask me to breathe, bring three songs. Oh, I'm sure. You know, it was an insanity. So I, in a way, I just kind of stood in front of my all the records. You can't move for records and CDs in my place. And 
I thought, okay, well, I've got to start with a Leonard Cohen song just because, you know, he meant so much to me. Obviously, I wouldn't have spent all this time on his book if he didn't. His music meant so much to me, his poetry. And the, as a result of doing this book, you know, here I am now, star of stage and screen. So, you know, I think we should go with him. And could we do this song, Suzanne? Because everybody has done Alleluia to death right now. And even Leonard, towards the end, was saying he hoped that there would be a moratorium. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her. And you know that she's half crazy. But that's why you want to be there. And she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from China. And just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her, then she gets you her wavelength and she lets the river answer that you've always been her lover and you want to travel with her and you want to travel blind and you know that she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water and he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower and when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him he said all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them but he himself was broken long before the sky would open forsaken almost human he sank beneath your wisdom like a stone and you want to travel with him and you want to travel blind and you trust him for he's touched your perfect body with his mind now Suzanne takes your hand and she leads you to the river she is wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters and the sun pours down like honey our Lady of the Harbor And she shows you where to look Among the garbage and the flowers There are heroes in the seaweed There are children in the morning They are leaning out for love They will lean that way forever While Suzanne holds the mirror travel with her and you want to travel blind and you know you can trust her for she's touched your perfect body with her mind it's like going to church isn't it <laughs> very so before talking about the music, probably. I'm, I'm curious. I um, do you know Andy Votel? He uh, runs the label Finders Keepers, uh, largely a reissue label, and uh, his wife is Jane Weaver, the musician. And uh, I was watching an interview with him yesterday, and he was talking about how delicate it can be to be a reissue label, dealing with family members and oftentimes you know someone's passed away and you're asking family members to dig up old boxes of tapes or you know maybe do some legal work but it's about 
you know, a family member that is lost or conflicted relationships. And it's not just about like, hey, do you want to give this thing up and get some money going? How was your experience of like dealing with not just this legend of Leonard Cohen, but also like everything that surrounded with it, weaving through um, friends and family and labels and, and does that make sense? In a way, um, obviously Leonard was alive when I was working with him, so Which I didn't have great. to deal with the estate. Yes. On the other hand, I wrote a book on Serge Gansborg and he was dead. So, I mean, right. you have sort of, you know, basically writing a biography is a kind of strange kind of stalking in a way that should, probably should be outlawed. And, you know, at least if they're no longer on the planet, you know, you can probably find out things a little more easily than when they are thankfully mm. still here. I didn't have to deal with that too much. Of course, there's always people. The more famous the person, the more every time you open a door, there's somebody hidden behind that door, like one of those advent calendars that have got chocolates behind them. But Leonard was not really so much like that. He was his own man. He did what he wanted to do. And of course, there was a record label and there was management. It was interesting with Leonard. He tended to be very loyal, maybe not to the women in his life, but certainly to his record company, his publishing company. He stayed with the same ones throughout his career, even though they weren't always that nice to him. At one point, his record company wouldn't release one of his albums because they didn't hear any songs on it. And one of the songs on that album was Alleluia. <laughs> so uh, he stayed with that. So he, he wasn't difficult at all. There was no restrictions put on me whatsoever. I was allowed to just go for it like a detective, try and track down all I could and speak to everybody that I wanted to. But yes, you're right with the record labels. They do do that. My own album came out uh, on Light in the Attic Records, oh. and they're famous for that. So yeah. I, actually, yeah. I'm label mates with Serge Gansburg and Jane Birkin, which, Damn. you know, every morning I wake up and smile at that. <laughs> I don't really, but it sounds good on radio. <laughs> Okay, so Leonard Cohen, how did you come into his music in the first place? He, I find that people come to him usually in a fairly unique way. You know, it's not like, I, I was into Bauhaus, so I found Susie and the Banshees. Leonard Cohen is just, there, there's not an easy route to him, you know? He's not akin, to, he's not like right next door to very much. You know, you can't say like, I was really into Gordon Lightfoot, and so of course I listened to Leonard. You know, there's none of, well, they're both But how it came about is I was into the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Kinks. I probably missed some out, but basically the great British rock that came out from when I was about 10 years old onwards. So at that point, it was almost like living in one of those sort of, like a musical sushi bar where instead of those little plates coming by on the conveyor belt, it was music. And I was young and I didn't know that this was a rare kind of golden age of music. And so I'd bought an album, a compilation album. It was called Rock Machine Turns You On. And I think it only came out in the UK, possibly Europe, but not here at the time. And this was in 1968. And it was the same price as a 45, a single. And I used to buy singles with any pocket money or anything, I, any money I could scrounge or steal. And so... Uh, I bought this album and it had on it people like Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel, Laura Nero, Leonard Cohen, basically the artists of the 60s that were out on Columbia Records. And I played that on my little portable record player that was smaller than an LP. So most of my LPs have got a weird kind of bowl shape now from sitting on that thing. And I just heard his voice and it was that strange voice. I mean, it's slightly strained. It's not pop voice. It sounds very, very intimate at least to a girl's ear. And also it had a kind of strange authority, like he knew something. I couldn't work it out. I was too young. I didn't know. But I kind of became a bit sort of addicted to him if an album came out. They didn't come out that often. Uh, but when it came out, I would buy it. And when I became a music journalist, it was like, first in line, I want to speak to Leonard Cohen. And I did. I interviewed him twice before I did the book over the years. And... I just wanted to try and get to the mystery of this man because there is so much mystery in those songs, you know? There's so much space in those melodies. You don't hear that often. I think that's why people like to cover them, just because of that weird space. And, and the strange chords that seem to have more to do with the music of the synagogue than kind of any rock or folk music that was going on at the time. And I wasn't Jewish, but somehow that music spoke to me. Do you feel like um, spending all this time with him and his music uh, more intimately brought you any answers, maybe even poetic truths that you could come to? 
Oh, I think several of both of the above, some what you would consider real truths in quotes and, and definitely some poetic ones. But just, you know, just digging around, you know, finding out things, learning. It's, it was a, such an interesting journey. I decided I needed to be everywhere where he had been, as I say, as part of my kind of strange stalking once removed. And I even went and stayed in the monastery where he had lived for five and a half years. But after two days, I was digging an escape tunnel. It was hideous. He said, darling, everybody thinks that monasteries are romantic places. This was not romantic. We were the Marines of the Buddhist world. <laughs> That's Leonard Cohen. I can't do his voice, but I tried. So what was, what was the experience of interviewing him like? Was it just kind of like hanging out with a new friend or what was he like? Huh, Leonard was probably more Leonard Cohen-esque. In other words, he was completely himself. Often over the years when I've interviewed stars, some of them don't really live up to who they are. You can tell they're putting a facade on. But he was exactly the same way. If you happened to drop by his place, he would be in a suit. And on the hat stand, there would be like sort of three different fedoras for, I guess, the best one, the Sunday fedora, the Saturday fedora. They're just going out to the shop's fedora. And a kind of squashed Dutch cap that he liked to wear sometimes. So he always looked like that. He always spoke in that slow, deliberate way that I always thought was as much like a poet choosing his words as a politician, making sure he didn't say too much. He had those two things going on. Sometimes it was like hanging with Abraham or Moses, and other times it was like hanging with Lenny Bruce or just some fun kid or a Jewish mom. He fed me every 10 minutes. I remember he didn't want me to die of starvation on his watch. But really, he's a very sh he was a very shy man, and he didn't really want to talk too much. He had that sort of Canadian modesty, you know, there's no showing off to him at all. But also didn't really want to delve into the past. He was quite superstitious about that. You know, wouldn't want to talk about how he wrote songs in case they never came back again. Certainly didn't want to talk about how he finally got rid of the depression that had been suicidal for most of his life. And at 70, it was gone. And when I tried to dig too deeply on that, he was like, my mother said, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. So I kept asking, because that's what you do in my job. And he just said, it may come back. I don't want to go there. Oh. So there were places he didn't want to go, but he allowed me as much access to get to his archives or, you know, his personal papers and, you know, unpublished work as I wanted and any of his friends, you know. He just left me to that. But himself, he, there was a lot of silence, you know. It's interesting, the, the name he was given when he was ordained a Buddhist monk was um, ordinary silence or... It could be the silence between two thoughts. And it was strange. I was sitting in him in both of those kind of silences quite often, just both of us looking out at the world and saying nothing. And eventually he might answer a question that was a really tough one. Did he get to see pages ever? Or did he get to respond to your work? Because it seems like, you know, Serge Gainsbourg obviously never saw your book. This book you're working on now is 50% or whatever the real percentage is the artist, but did Leonard Cohen actually get... He didn't ask to look. Yeah. At one point I was having... Did you uh, offer? Or do you, are you just like, no... I didn't. I waited yeah, to see yeah. if he would say that. But um, I was having some problems with my American publisher. And uh, who wanted... I think probably the whole book changed, to be quite honest. And so uh, I was just standing firm and refusing to change anything. And I guess word had got to Leonard, as word does. You know, I wasn't going to bother him with this. And he asked me if I, he said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> and he asked, can I do anything? And I didn't know if that meant he was going to go in with boxing gloves and, and, you know, beat up my publisher, which would have been very mean. I would not have allowed that at all. <laughs> and... Um, I didn't really quite know what it was or whether he thought I might need some money to get through the dark times of, uh, of it not coming out. And I said, no, it's fine. You know, there's a certain protocol in these things. You don't sit there and, you know, cry on somebody's shoulder about that if you're working with them. And so he said, what do they want? And I said, I, I really have no idea, Leonard. And he said, don't let them whitewash it. And he said it again, don't let them whitewash it. I trust you. 
and I don't want a hagiography. Now, the idea of any person of his stature and status, a celebrity, saying that is almost unbelievable. Most people will want something taken out because there are some things in there I'm sure he was not proud of. But he never once got in the way of it and, uh, and was very grateful for the book. Fantastic. Oh, I know. I was very, very lucky in the choice of that. So, yes, it's um, so that's what happened with that. And he was also very amused at me going out on the road and being a human, then a joke, <laughs> then a coin jukebox with a ukulele. He told me he'd played the ukulele when he was young. Of course, he did. Absolutely. <laughs> there you are. All the best people do. <laughs> I think that probably my next choice, David Bowie, was very likely a ukulele player. Shall we get to him? Yes, David Bowie. And you're going to ask why. After we listen. Ha! Which one should we go for? I'm thinking, how about rock and roll suicide? There are not very many bad choices in his entire discography. There you go. But that one, I love because the idea of a suicide song after Leonard Cohen, who oh. all of the record companies used to, in England used to say they would give free razor blades with the albums because of that. But here we've got David Bowie doing a song, rock and roll suicide. Time takes a cigarette Puts it in your mouth You pull on your finger Then another finger Then cigarette the water wall is calling It lingers Then you forget Oh, 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 oh You're a rock and roll suicide You're too old to lose it Too young to choose it And the clock waits so patiently On your song Walk past the cafe But you don't eat When you've lived too long Oh no, no, no You're a rock and roll suicide Shift breaks the snarling As you stumble across the road But the day breaks instead So you hurry home let the sun blast your shadow Don't let the milk float Rob your mind They're so natural Religiously unkind Oh no, love You're not alone You're watching yourself But you're too unfair You've got your head all tangled up But I'm barking on Ziggy Stardust was totally one of my driving around the suburbs when I was 16 albums. Um, yeah, that album's pretty important to me, just outside of how good it just is for nostalgic purposes. So why that one, of all of all Bowie songs? Well, in a way, it kind of runs on from Leonard Cohen in the yeah. sense that, you know, Leonard used to always talk about these kind of crawling across the carpets, trying to write a song and feeling suicidal. And then, and here's an anthem about, you know, the clock waiting patiently for the song. 
But but when I first heard it, and I was a kid back in London, and I went to see Bowie live and everything, there was something about him, you know. There really was. He was just, he kind of allowed you to be far more than you were. He was much more than any band, really, a kind of, he was a work of art in action. You know, it was like a kind of performance artist there. And just so wild. And I guess back then, girls were allowed to do that. You know, fashions would change every three weeks in London. One week it would be kind of pink lipstick, or one minute it would be white lipstick with big white plastic earrings and all of that era that I was in. But this kind of allowed the boys to do it too. And people of, of no gender-specific name, you know. It was just so wonderful to know that we were there. I covered that song actually uh, singing at David Bowie benefit or oh, not benefit sorry tribute i wish we could have benefited him and kept him alive forever uh-huh. but it was a tribute and when i actually started playing that just realizing how many chords there are in that song uh-huh. it really is a complicated song yeah. it was no sort of three chord wonder his songs are fantastic and the other reason it's there two reasons i had just been on tour and i was in new york playing with jim white brilliant brilliant musician and um, I went to the Bowie exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. So yeah. seeing the Ziggy Stardust costume and the videos, I mean, he's living back in my head like he used to. That's great. What I think is really interesting about this album and that song fittingly closing it is that it feels like one of those albums that's hard to move past. Like, what do you do with rock music after an album like this for two reasons? One is that it's fucking great <laughs> like what else are you going to say with rock after yeah. after Ziggy Stardust but also the subject matter using the character of Ziggy sort of as a as an analog for rock music itself and following this arc of this character and sort of like well what's what's left after this this character like can can we go anywhere after Ziggy Stardust right I kind of think one of the things that got it for me as well is that he was playing an acoustic guitar, you know, same as on uh, Space Oddity, which was the first choice, really, because I've been playing that on tour now. Just, uh, I've just become addicted to it in every possible way, having seen all the videos of it in, uh, at that exhibition. And uh, yeah, so that was definitely a sort of stepping stone beca- between this kind of folk thing and this music hall thing to... You know, this absolutely mind-blowing anthem. And, of course, he just reinvented himself all the time. So, yes, you can see where he goes. He had the same thing. I've done that. Now I move on. But occasionally he would go in a circle and go back and pick up the spaceman again and take him somewhere else. I loved him so much. Wow. God, that was a hard loss. Him and Leonard Cohen in the same year. I think I didn't realize until he passed that... um, Probably most music that I'm invested in mm-hmm. stems from him in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, like most goth music that I grew up on, the kind of post-punk that I was interested in, like it all sort of really comes out of his branch of the of the tree. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Debbie Harry adored him. He took uh, Debbie and Blondie on the road with him and Iggy Pop when uh, he was playing, when De- David was playing keyboard player for Iggy. Did you see that? No, I didn't, sadly to say, but I wish I had. Maybe I can make up that I did, but now we've spoiled it. I've already confessed. (laughs) Should I edit that out? (laughs) No, leave it there. Let's have the truth. I did see David in London when I was young. Did you ever interview him? Yeah. It was my job. Sure. What uh, what eras? What what were you guys talking about at the time? Different times. You know, I remember we did it on the, the beautiful Moonlight Tour once before that. Very, very charming. Again, he's got a certain sort of quality of Leonard Cohen where he can charm you to death and sort of somehow mask that he's not giving you the whole truth, but enough truth for an article. He knew how to hold some of himself back. And he showed that very much with those last albums where he, you know, made the uh, people in the recording studio in New York at the Magic Shop sign kind of agreements of non-disclosure that he wasn't there, he didn't do anything. That kind of private side of him, that shy side of him, was very much, you know, it was very much a sort of like a, I wouldn't say it was a dual personality, but it was very interesting that somebody like that would go up and put these costumes on and put these masks on, you know, figuratively as well as literally, and do what he did for us. Of all the books that have been written about him, there's any that, for you, kind of nails it in the way that you think is the treatment he deserves? 
What oh, do you, no. Which book do you recommend? Ah, there was one not that long ago by Paul Trinker, who was a, a former editor of Mojo magazine, and I think that's pretty thorough on it. I kind of think really that uh, in general that journalists, music journalists write too many books and they should read a few more, but, you know, we've all got to make a living and all that. But uh, Paul's is a good book. I did a lot of research on that. But I think that, you know, acts like Bowie, as with Bob Dylan, for example, have had good books you know people have given that attention and whereas with the people that I've tended to write about like Leonard Cohen or Serge Gansberg they've been very underserved in that department you know there's not exactly heaving shelves full of Leonard Cohen books until I guess at the point right near the end of his life when everybody was bashing one out yeah. <laughs> including me ah, yeah. no I got him while he was still alive <laughs> all right what shall we listen to next oh what are we going to do next okay it was impossible to go for another one. I was going to be an egotist and bring my album in, but no, I have begun. That's not egotistical. No, I won't do that. I Wide open here. I will not impose my uke upon anybody. They can check me out if they want. I'll provide and a link. <laughs> a link will be done. But I thought Serge Gansborg, and that was re really because recently I had a call from somebody, a nice guy, who had actually done a book of essays on The Clash and had used an interview I did the, with The Clash in... 1979 when I went on the road with him with them I should say I was on the road with the clash he put this um interview I did from there into his book and he called up he was going to try and uh, make a documentary on Serge Gansborg so that reminded me oh yeah <laughs> I wrote that book too and so I thought I would either choose um Bonnie and Clyde which uh Serge did as a duet with his then lover Brigitte Bardot or better still, Histoire de Melody Nelson, one of the greatest albums of all time. So let's do um, the Ballad of Melody Nelson, which I think is track two of Histoire de Melody Nelson. Ça, c'est l'histoire de Melody Nelson. Qu'à moi-même, personne. N'a jamais pris dans ses bras, ça vous étonne, mais c'est comme ça. Elle avait de l'amour pour vous. Melody Nelson. Mais elle en avait des tonnes. Mais ses jours étaient comptés. 14 automnes et 15 étés Isn't it just wonderful? And I just thought there's a link between that and Bowie because these are both concept albums. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, his voice is so, like, deep and resonant. I don't know if you could hear it. It seemed like it was just the resonance of this room. Like, it was just actually his voice was just a little too loud, like the speaker placement in this room and his voice were just kind of a little too much and at the end of towards the end of leonard cohen's life he was singing like that so this is all yeah. a little happy circle of wonderful music that i have now just joined together <laughs> and with my little sewing kit so he's another like leonard cohen pretty anomalous one figure. off yeah three again. one offs i chose yeah there's not ain't nothing like that guy how did you come to his music in the first place 
I was living in France and uh, at that time, and it was actually just as he died, and the whole country was in mourning, and there were flags at half-mast, and I was living in the middle of nowhere, or milieu de nulle part in French, <laughs> and the old neighbor next door, an old farmer was crying. Everyone was crying, and I, in my kind of English rock journalist arrogance, I thought, my God, he only had the one hit, Je t'aime one en bleu, which was like number one in England in 1969 and for ba being banned for uh, sort of sounding like somebody was having sex during it. And probably was if, if Serge Gansborg was involved. So um, I kind of got a bit arrogant about it and a French friend just came over with a big pile of LPs and said, listen to this, this is why we love Serge. That's the best way. I know. With someone I was with ashamed. an agenda to come and like force you to confront a work of art. That's the I best. did, but it's like the French are always rude about English cooking, and we're pretty good now, actually. But you Come know, a I long guess way. it's there. There you got it. <laughs> so that was how I started, and I, I you know, had to persuade a, a British magazine to do a piece on him. They were you know, again because it was French music, and there's a, a lot of kind of conflict between us. You know, the little neighbors that don't get along so well, <laughs> like San Francisco and Oakland. Ah, yeah, joking, <laughs> sort of. And so. Uh, in the end, when that uh, I did that, I was interviewing people like Jane Birkin and Sly and Robbie, who had also worked with all of these interesting people. And Jane Birkin sort of suggested that I would write a book explaining him to the British. And so that was uh, a wonderful process of sitting in Paris, drinking an awful lot of wine and getting little panels together of people who knew a lot more about French music than I did and could explain who these people were that he worked with whether they were more like, say, I don't know, kind of Bono, or if they were more like Cohen on the sort of respect scale, you know, these kind of questions you can't answer unless you've lived there for longer than I had. So when you wrote Fistful of Vichetan, did you have that kind of an agenda, like explaining Serge Gainsbourg to English, or were you just like writing the book? I was definitely trying to explain it. I was almost like trying to compose a movie in my head, I, you know, reading it now it seems very cinematic the way that I've done it and it was mostly because I wanted to know so at the same time I'm trying to work out you know why this guy's music had moved me so much when it was all just dumped on me pretty much the day after he died I kind of uh, I was learning about him as much as I was teaching other people and trying to find find really the bits in there that made him so special what was so curious is that after doing uh, the Cohen book and actually Leonard had told me that he'd met Gansburg, he knew him a little, that there were a lot of similarities in that both of them, although were singers, weren't really known for their singing voices, especially in the beginning until they found that kind of strange deep murmuring that, that people love them for now and really were writing some of their best songs for women to sing. In Leonard Cohen's case, he would have backing singers sing it, but in his absolute fantasy, it would have been all women singing them and not him at all. And also both of them had this thing where they uh, they really couldn't stand too much chaos in their life because there was so much chaos going on in their heads. It's odd the kind of little connections between the two of them that I would see over time. Is there anything in researching Gansborg that you kind of couldn't find? Whether that is a person who was resistant to communicating with you, which is a drag, or something, part of that search, part of that detective... Uh, quest that you just couldn't crack, do you feel? I didn't get that in the um, Surge book because I really wasn't going to dive like headfirst into an 800-page book right. on him. I, with the Cohen book, yes, there were occasional times. One of them was that I wanted to speak to all of his record producers that were still alive. Some of them had died. And I couldn't get one in particular who was Phil Spector. Phil being oh. imprisoned for a murder. Yes. So I tried and I wrote letters, you know, to him in the prison and, um, you know, sent little stamped addressed envelopes so, you know, he wouldn't have to spend his prison money writing back. He never did. And then I asked some mutual friends, one of whom actually was so close with Phil, he would visit him uh, to take in a list of questions to show that they weren't about guns, even though a gun was used in the making of the album that he and Leonard Cohen collaborated 50-50 on. Interesting thought. And uh, it was all to do with this kind of strange collaboration, mostly because Leonard Cohen wasn't a collaborator at that time. 
So yes, that one I couldn't get. I was going to, you know, I'm not very big, as you can see. I'm very petite. So I thought I'd make a cake and smuggle myself in and jump out and ask him the questions. But in the end, the deadline kind of came up and I really had to kind of meet some deadline. So I never got Phil and that's a shame. Uh, do you have a favorite arc or period of Serge Gainsbourg's work? Like David Bowie, he and Leonard Cohen, constantly reinventing himself, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the just completely confounding. What's your favorite sort of moments? Of well, I could say I wasn't so fond with the early stuff. I went through the mm. whole thing chronologically because, you know, there's, I think with a lot of journalists, old school journalists, you, you are a little bit kind of anal, you know, you kind of put everything in alphabetical order and then you put it in numerical order, you know, chronological order, I should say. These things just come naturally to the, the rock critic brain. And so I wanted to start from the beginning. And that early kind of jazz stuff where he was very sneery and a little bit kind of angry young French guy kind of thing and that slightly high voice didn't really do it to me. I, you know, I don't put on songs like Le Poisonneur de Lila. You know, it's not my cup of tea at all. But it was really when I got up to Melody Nelson. At that point, I was, I think, almost swooning. I loved that album so much with its kind of arrangements that have been stolen by so many bands. I mean, Beck for sure has, has borrowed, shall we say, so much from there, that group Air in France. So mm -hmm. many people, especially at the period when the dance music thing had this sort of big sister, which was that kind of loungy music that you could chill out to. So I loved the arrangements. I, I loved because I understood the words. I understood the crazy story. If you're in the Me Too movement, you will not like the story. And it was very much the kind of French thing, the sort of gnarly old stuff, old man, sort of, and the underage girl and love. And then it gets crazy. He definitely, things went crazy with um, with his songs. In that one, in this album, there's a cargo cult that is kind of part of his religion to try and pray and get the, the plane back that uh, his young girlfriend dies in when she gets homesick for some really awful part of London and leaves France. I mean, it's, it's so mad. That's the maddest part of the story. <laughs> so I feel like on both my podcasts, both this one and Scary Thoughts, there's this recurring theme of listening to music or appreciating art by difficult people, whether they're deplorable people or there's something about even in the work itself that is so troubling that it it really begs the question of uh, of appreciating it. How do you sort of reconcile with these artists? On the other hand, with him, it was all talk. You know, he was uh, he was a ladies' man, but he was really a kind of serial monogamist in a way. And I'm sure that you know there were some things on the side, but generally speaking, he was never an abuser of women. He was a worshipper of women, but of course that's got its own little, you know, internal abuse to it that, you know, you're not accepting a woman as another half of the planet. It's more a kind of something to be worshipped, adored, etc. That was his muse, you know, and you often find that. I mean, Picasso, as we know, was not particularly, you know, well-mannered with his own muses and didn't just use them for posing purposes. Um, if you go through the history of French film, you'll see that this is a kind of type that has been promulgated in France anyway, the kind of, you know, the older guy and, and the sort of innocent young girl. But, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, there are artists that I've interviewed who, you know, I wouldn't cross the street to put them out. If they were on fire, I wouldn't cross the street to help put them out. They're not good people, but I still love the music. There's, you know, what can you say? Let's say Van Morrison, you know certainly would not win anybody's popularity stakes who's ever missed who's ever worked with him other than maybe a few old blues players and jazz players certainly not amongst journalists or engineers or producers or record company people but you know god if you believe in god gave him the voice of an angel on a saxophone wrapped up all in one and his music things something like astral weeks is is one of the finest things that's ever been made so in the end, I just kind of put that out of my mind. I meant to interview people and hopefully scratch a little of the surface and, and, you know, help them to reveal themselves or if they won't do it, reveal them myself. But, you know, it's really not my job to kind of criticize their art because they happen to be dickheads, you know. <laughs> How do you navigate the space between talking about the work and the personalities? Obviously... We often want to privilege the work, the music mm -hmm. itself, but it's hard not to 
spend time investigating the the people who made it. But of course, you know, if you were raised on English journalism, oh my God, you know, English rock journalism is rife with like the sort of the worst kind of just celebrity fluff and and all that. And so where do, where do you think the line is? Yeah. Uh, in the really? music press too? You think? Oh God, yeah. I guess, I don't know. I mean, back in the day, we were really interested in them as people. I mean, my feeling, you know, why even I'd quite enjoyed talking to the ones who were difficult is that we had something in common, that we both loved music. They made it, I listened to it. I used to buy it and I got it for free because I was a music journalist. But there was still this absolute like passion for the same subject. And so it was sometimes interesting to to work out what made them tick, what drew them there. Because I think a lot of people who get obsessed with music in their teens, if they can play anything, they do. And then they realize sometimes, like their limitations. At that time when I was writing songs with my guitar, you know, this is my pre-uke years, way back in my prehistory. And all of my songs were like two minor chords and, and that was it, you know, and some really awful lyrics. So thank the Lord I didn't become a rock star then. You should all, you know, pay me for this. And um, But, you know, these people who can do it, who can write like Bowie did or like write like Leonard Cohen did, these mind-blowing people, you want to know what made them tick, what influenced them, how did they grow up, where did it go right with them, where it went wrong with you, you know, how could Bowie have grown up in the same city as I did? Okay, South London, I was North London, you know, but at the same time, he was the one that got up there with an acoustic guitar, which I had, and he wrote Space Oddity. I didn't. You want to know, you want to try and just unpeel the the layers of the onion a little bit you know and see what is in there you know how does how does this person tick what are they doing you know you are interested in their life because their art is so important to you you know it's more than just a piece of art hanging on the wall which yeah you look at if you're sitting opposite but it doesn't engulf you like music does i think music is to me the absolute you know primo art it's the one that you kind of bathing you soak in it just gets into every pore and every cell of your body that's a little bit much isn't it no. you should hear my ukulele songs they're all like that <laughs> thank you sylvie I encourage you all to check out Sylvie's work online at sylviesimmons.com. Her books are, of course, available on Amazon and at your local bookstore, and her music is available on Light in the Attic Records. And, as I say at the end of every episode, if we've introduced you to music that you want to hear more of, please buy it in the highest quality possible, as directly from the artists as possible. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a moment to rate or review Why We Listen. Right now in the background here, we're listening to Contact by Brigitte Bardot. I'm Mark Kate. This is Why We Listen. Thank you for listening. J'en ai tant perdu par cette blessure. 